You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast was created by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund as part of our ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, I speak to Ross Ritchie, the founder and chief executive officer of Boom Studios. Boom is a longtime supporter of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and they've recently come on board as a corporate member. They've had a very big year uh, acquiring Arkea Studios, launching a new imprint, Boom Box, and signing a first look deal with Fox Studios. In this interview, Ross and I talk about his history as a comics fan, his time at Malibu during the sales explosion of the early 1990s, and we talk about Boom Studios, how they formed, what they're up to lately, and uh, what he sees the future of that studio being. At Heroes Con 2013, Ross did me the favor of appearing on a panel with me about the history of censorship in comics. And anyone who was in that room saw an hour of two huge comic fans go off the rails talking about their favorite uh, favorite comics throughout history. And we went down a total rabbit hole. Uh, this podcast follows that just a little bit. You'll see us go off on a couple of dog legs. And I hope you forgive the digression. What you see is two people who genuinely love comics and who have similar taste uh, revisiting a lot of nostalgia and enjoying the conversation so i hope uh, you enjoy it too and without further ado here is ross ritchie okay my name is ross ritchie and i am the founder and chief executive officer ceo of boom studios my uh, my first comics that i ever read i got from an easter basket that my mom gave me it had a copy of fantastic four 178, which was written by Roy Thomas and drawn by George Perez, and Captain America 207, which was written and drawn by the king of comics, Jack Kirby. And I look back at those first two comic books, and I was seven years old in 1977, and it was a pretty mind-blowing experience. Captain America, I'm a huge Kirby fan, but the Captain America comic book scared the hell out of me. There were Nazis putting people in ovens in the last uh, couple of pages of 207, and that gave me nightmares. That was and that was there, in the return, his uh, his return from D.C., or is this earlier? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this that is... was, and, you know, he had gone to D.C. and done uh, New Gods, and that had petered out to uh, him doing Commandy, and then he came back to Marvel and did Eternals and Black Panther and did a second run on Captain America. And Devil Dinosaur. And, and Devil Dinosaur, sure. I always talk about Devil Dinosaur is the greatest pitch uh, that any comic book creator could ever give, which would be like, hey, let's do E.T., but instead of a boy and his alien, what we're going to do is a boy and his dinosaur, and the way that we're going to make it better than that is we're going to make the boy a monkey oh, yeah. who rides the dinosaur, and then it will be written and drawn by the Elvis of comics. Yeah, it's so. on paper. It's magnificent, <laughs> and honestly, in practice too. Who are we fooling? It's a great comic, dude. It, it, when you're seven, it is it is everything you need. Yep. So, um, so I got nightmares from the Kirby book and the Fantastic Four comic. I have that distinct memory of it is it, it is it's like part eight of forty which is obviously an exaggeration, but it is in the middle of an incredibly complex story 
story, and it is the Frightful Five attacking the Baxter building. Annihilus is coming from the negative zone. Um, the Brute, who, by the way, is a villain who is a counter-Earth version of Reed Richards, who transforms into a Hulk-like monster that is not green but purple, and um, Thundra and Tigra. So it couldn't have been crammed with more uh, characters. Theoretically, it couldn't be more confusing for it to be the first comic. I completely understood uh, what was going on, and the fact that it was a part of a multi-part story was unintimidating to me because I often turned on TV shows and turned them on 20 minutes into the story and understood that you can contextually kind of figure out what's going on. And I looked at the corner box and it said 178, and I thought if there's a hundred, if that means that there's 177 before this, I have to read every single one of them. Did you at that point were you putting together artists and, and books? I mean, were you aware of no. creators? Okay. No, that was. That came later. That came with Micronauts. And so the first 12 issues of the Micronauts were drawn by uh, Michael Golden. Mm -hmm. And the 13th issue came out, and it looked radically different. And the layouts were by uh, Howard Chaikin, and it was uh, finished and inked by Al Milgram. And the, the change in artistic style, this is like two years later uh, from when I'm reading comics after reading comics for two years, the change in artistic style was so jarring to me that I the, the name Howard Shaken stuck in my mind, and I was obsessed with trying to figure out, like, you know, what had happened. I think he stuck in a lot of people's minds in that era. Well, and and, and you know, Howard became a massive figure for me reading comics. Uh, like at around '84, I got my hands on American Flag, and that was really one of the first things that I read where it wasn't just, oh, it's a mature reader's comic, like, oh, it's heavy metal and there's boobs. Uh, there were actually no boobs in American Flag. It was more like it was sophisticated. Sure. And it just really, me sitting there going, like, I cannot understand. I'm, like, 14. I have no idea what's going on in this comic. And I just kind of put it aside and decided, you know, years later, I would come back to it when I could understand what the hell it was talking about. I think that we are lucky in that we both had similar experiences, maybe on the, the opposite ends of that particular boom, where I also was picking up American Flag, but kind of towards the end, and, and Cerebus. Um, uh, Cerebus is great for that. But, you know, I was nine. I, I had no business reading any of that stuff because I had no idea what was going on. Um, right. But it was amazing. Like yeah, I, Cerebus I, at nine, that, and American Flag, that's, that's, that's craziness. Yeah, I was just picking up whatever happened to look cool, and those were on the shelf alongside, you know, Fantastic Four or Superboy. You could do that. You could walk into any random comic shop and just pick up a, a bizarre assortment of material. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. We just had Paul Levitz uh, throw his hat in the boom ring and come in to help advise us on... Uh, you know, just with this wealth of experience. And it's been incredible. Obviously, this era is really seminal for me and, you know, my development, kind of what I was drawn to and fascinated with and excited about. And so, and that's kind of, you know, Paul came to D.C. in the late 70s and made a lot of decisions like, you know, 86 Watchmen comes out, uh, number one, and it used to be that you could only buy comic books if you were a comic book store. You could only buy them in bundles of 60 or at least to your DC comics you could. And Watchmen was the first comic book that Paul was like, look, we need to be able to sell this individually, like however many copies a retailer wants to order. And of course, 
now that's how it's done. So I, I the poor Paul, you know, like the first time we got together, I was like, let's go out to dinner. Like spend you know, three hours grilling him with like every single minute question. Because from that stretch from 1980 to 1990 is the transition from newsstand to direct market comic book stores and creating that phenomenon that you're talking about where Cerebus is sitting next to Superboy and there's not enough big two comic books uh, to kind of crowd everything off of the rack which I think nowadays comic book stores are challenged uh, to be able to display all the important titles that are being published and the independents were just uh, sort of making their stake and and, uh, evolving and kind of creating this commercial space which wasn't sort of small press comics but was beyond the big two and it was you know that everything was kind of happening and evolving and the, the marketplace was coming into its own and so you know it's it's been great fun to get some of the behind the scenes stories from paul there's very few people that kind of saw how the gears were turning um that are still yeah. active what a vantage point and, yeah and happy yeah. to talk about it um, but it really was uh probably the 10 most important years that shaped what, what we're doing now yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned that FF book, which was drawn by George Perez, and we're going to come back to that yeah. a little bit later. But uh, you you started following Marvel um, exclusively. Were you all over the map? I never I never really looked at anything from that perspective. And what's kind of funny is when I got those comic books, I kind of I didn't understand kind of the periodical nature of what they were and so it was it was sort of like oh you get a comic book and it's like getting a children's book it's like you don't go back and keep buying children's books it's like they you know they come as presents and people give them to you and you just kind of put them in your collection and really what happened to me was seeing star wars in the theaters i had an early experience for me like when i was four and five my dad would wake me up uh, late at night after the news and I grew up in San Antonio and Star Trek would come on after the news and my dad would wake me up at like 10.30 at night which you know, for a little kid is incredibly late and we would watch Star Trek and I'm not the world's biggest Star Trek fan, I certainly love the original series and watch that but I don't have an encyclopedia knowledge or I can't compete with Trekkers and their deep knowledge but that really blew my mind with science fiction and Star Wars did as well and Really, what I found in the Fantastic Four was less of a superhero comic book and more of a science fiction story. And so I really migrated to the Micronauts and ROM and a lot of those post-Star Wars. uh, At Marvel, they were particularly licensed comics. But I was never a Superman, Spider-Man guy, the sort of conventional, even Batman before Frank Miller did uh, Dark Knight, even that sort of conventional sense of like, oh, I'm a, I have a secret identity and I transform and I have a costume and all of those conventions to me were not very magnetic. What was exciting to me was once I figured out that they were published periodically, it was like, oh, and, you know, like Star Wars, like Star Trek is not on the air. So I've watched all the episodes. There's nothing else to watch. There's not, at that time, it was not clear that they were going to continue to make Star Wars movies. So, like, how was I going to get science fiction? I was too young to be able to, you know, when you're 14, 15, you can dive into all the great, you know, Asimov and Clark and all that sort of stuff. So it was like, how do I get science fiction uh, periodically? And it was through comics. And that's that was really my gateway. And so I didn't care 
you know, like when the Atari Force was coming out from DC, I didn't care if it just said Marvel or DC on it. And then slowly, you know, then I found the X-Men, and that was kind of more... Still, it's kind of a science fiction book. They don't really have secret identities. They kind of, you know, zoom around into space, or they're, you know, they're not kind of hanging out in Manhattan. And so that was kind of my entree into more conventional superhero comics. And then uh, when I was in junior high and the independents were really exploding, uh, that was kind of another way to go get genre fiction that didn't necessarily have to be superheroes, which, you know, let me be clear, I love superheroes. Uh, I have, you know, 50 long boxes in my garage that my wife complains about full of superheroes, but uh, it was not the thing that drew me to the medium. Well, you were in a golden age. I mean, you know, post 1950s EC material, I would say the early 80s is probably um, the the next golden age for science fiction and genre material in comics because you had uh, Pacific doing Alien Worlds and the Bruce Jones books. Yep. Uh, were, were you reading that stuff? You, I, I'm taking that, you were reading everything, right? You had pretty Catholic taste. Yeah, I was pretty uh, omnivorous, um, although the sort of... I, I always kind of saw the Bruce Jones books, even though they had contemporary artists on them, it always felt to me like they were trying to recreate EC, which is what I think they were targeting to do. Mm -hmm. And so at that age, that was lower down on my priority list where, you know, when you had something like Micronauts, you know, I didn't, I'd never read The New Gods. And so I didn't understand that Michael Golden was channeling a lot of uh, the apocalypse, um, you know, sort of hunger dogs uh, into a Croyer and Spartak and all that sort of stuff. Like the, the the huge Kirby influence on Golden, I didn't understand that that was like one of the things that was really cool and propulsive, but um, and and drew me in. But it, I was sort of more into the new, uh, cutting edge at the time kind of stuff and less kind of the classic anthology Twilight Zone slash EC approach that Bruce was doing, which the guys, you know, freaking brilliant. They, they hold up incredibly well. I, I mean, going looking at it now, what's crystal clear, Bruce was living in Southern California and was bringing a current-day filmic perspective to comic book writing that it didn't have. A lot of people were... It, Kind of, it was kind of hard, unless you were, you know, Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber. There's obviously, you know, the luminaries of the era in the '70s, but most people were trying to write in the Stan Lee style, in the way that Stan had completely changed the way you write comics and all that sort of stuff. And Bruce just came in with like minimal dialogue and a real sort of cinematic sensibility, and just completely was doing something totally different. Because you know, EC predates all that stuff, and his influences were in place before Stanley came on, on board. Sure. So, well, he also just a very modern. He, he modern understood take. classical structure, and he knew how to tweak it. And and you got these nice little three act pieces that uh, otherwise you were getting these long extended kind of soap opera. Yeah. And and he yep. really could tie a, a plot together in four or five pages. In Micronauts, it's the first year. It's a, it's a, the first twelve issues is pretty much one story. Right. Whereas you know, like Bruce was walking in doing you know six page stories, and they were. They were done, and you know that was the sort of thing I launched Boom with with Zombie Tales. Was I really ardently believed, having read a lot of that kind of stuff growing up? I, I, uh, you know, after this time period that we're talking about, but you know, when I launched Zombie Tales, I was like, no, you know, you can tell a six-page, eight-page story that has, you know, rich themes and it has a deep core to it. It's just not going to be decompressed. 
Right. You know, you're just going to have to use some panels. Um, were you reading Heavy Metal and the other anthology books that weren't quite so retro at the time? Um, Things like 1984 I... and... The, the Every Warren time, it, well, I I love those Warren books, and in particular when you say 1984, yeah, I mean like 1984 would be the thing that I would be drawn to because it had that science fiction sensibility, uh, some of the, the 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 art style, a lot of the uh, Spanish artists that they were using uh, and the Filipino guys were more kind of contemporary in their design style, and so yeah, a couple of those books really hit me across the head and. And, you know, Warren was really, really, really trying to chase the Star Wars marketing. You know, the, the copy on the magazines were designed to lure Star Wars fans in. And so, yeah, they, they got me with that. Uh, much more than heavy metal. I mean, the problem that I always had with heavy metal was sort of like, I was really drawn to story. And the, you know, it's so fragmented in heavy metal. And you could be in that place where you're just getting like five pages uh, in the series of 60 from Mobius that month, and you just don't have any context, and you just can't figure out what's going on. So, no, and even the best of those stories are really shaggy dog tales to service the art, um, which isn't right. a bad thing, but if you're looking for a tight plot, that's not gonna, that's not really the place to look for it. Yeah, and I mean, I loved, the, I loved art, but it, it was just too abstract and too fragmentary for me to be able to handle it that in that sort of like junior high era and I was much more or even you know like you know fourth fifth grade I was much more in the zone of like give me the contained storytelling of something like 1984 were there any Marvel sci-fi magazines I can't I guess Epic Illustrated they kind of did sci-fi and fantasy well I was crazy for Epic sure you know that that was huge to me and that was sort of like the cohesive heavy metal you know and Obviously, it was a bridge from Marvel style to some of the more um, fine art stylings of of heavy metal, and so, um, like you know that that like I bit lock, stock, and barrel on the Metamorphosis Odyssey and the migration to Dreadstar, and like all of that stuff was massive to me. It's really, really influential. Oh yeah, that's that again. That's a uh, another kind of you know part of this whole era that, that we mentioned briefly that just changed comics forever. I mean, Epic, um, it's it's a real shame a lot of that stuff isn't readily in print, but the, the Last Galactus story. Um, oh, that's the, huge. The Charles Vess uh, Warriors 3 stuff. Well, well, you know, Neil Adams was doing things in the early Epic Illustrated books, and I didn't, I had missed everything that Neil did because I was too young. And so I had just heard about Neil and I'd read in the backs of, um, like I was buying, Starlog was publishing uh, Comics Scene, mm -hmm. which was their, you know, comic book, uh, you know, uh, news thing. And I read about, you know, Jack Kirby's New Gods, and I, like it taught me about back issues because there was like no way to find out about those things. And so I knew that Neil was a big deal, but like there was no Neil comics to buy that were on the racks. Like I had no access to uh, conventions or back issues or comic book stores. I mean, I was buying things off the newsstand until well in, deep into the 80s. I was probably 84, 85 before I could really uh, get to a comic book store. And the um, that, uh, you know, Neil was in it. Barry Windsor Smith was the same legendary guy that wasn't doing anything at the time, but he'd do stuff for Epic. And so that was, you know, real rarefied air. Uh, yeah, that was a big book. And then those early Epic series were all uh, seminal to me. You know, I ended up doing hooking up with the Comic Buyer's Guide, 
and doing mail order. It's, you know, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned not having access to a comic store. When did you start to, uh, you're, you're talking about a lot of current material. When were you able to start digging into the history of comics? Um, it was really comic scene that I remember they did a cover story on Kirby and I just didn't know what they were talking about. And they did this big retrospective on the new gods in the fourth world and how it was launched uh, as, you know, a cohesive, um, you know, multi-book storytelling. And all of that was just sort of giving me the vocabulary to understand from more of an industry perspective, like how everything was mapped out, and how the things were published and how, what it was thought of. And um, that, that then, I think in 82 was the first convention in San Antonio that I was aware of and that I, I went to. And um, I remember my mom was shoe shopping. What they used to do is in the area between them in the mall, middle of the mall where current day kiosks are, back in the day there were no kiosks. And so they just had uh, vendors set up in the middle of the mall. And it was brilliant because it was like, how do you get kids to check out comics? You just kind of, you go to where mom shops for shoes. And so, you know, I was being tortured by my mom and my mom was being tortured by me. And so she was really thrilled to like, let's just go look at these comics and leave me alone. And she came back a long time later, probably an hour and a half later. And I was at the same booth because I couldn't comprehend that there could be enough comic books to be a convention. Like the one one dealer table, uh, he had like four tables, and like that was more comic books. Like that was enough for me. Oh know? yeah, yeah. She was like, "You didn't you didn't walk all the way down the mall and look at everything?" And I was just like, "I can't handle this." I remember the feeling the first time I saw a, a comic shop um, that had an extensive back issue collection. Just being so overwhelmed, uh, it was like an emotional experience. Like I, I got yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hyperventilating. Like I couldn't, I didn't even know where to start, and it was too overwhelming because there was too much material. I could have looked, you know, starting at A, thirty boxes later, been at Z, and and just I, I wouldn't have even known yeah. where to begin. Yeah, it's interesting now that you're asking me these questions because it's unlocking a lot of memories and I'm I'm connecting a lot of things that I hadn't connected together before. But I remember distinctly at that booth looking at the New Gods comics that I had read about in Star and in, in the comic scene. And sort of going like, okay, how many are there? And, you know, what did they look like? And what were the covers like? I didn't have any money to buy them. But then what happened was, was every year I would anticipate the convention. And so I would uh, make money and save money. And I remember being like 14 and working the entire year and having $250 and going to that show with an aim of, I'm going to buy Giant Size X-Men number one, which I got for 60 bucks. Uh, and just to give you a sense of 1984 prices. Um, but it was out of the quarter bins was that's how I got the Pacific comics. Like I was head over heels for Pacific, anything that Pacific did, um, uh, Eclipse. And that was really those um, direct market books I was getting at the convention. And then it would be, you know, later that I could kind of get, since I could drive, it was all about how do I convince my mom to like on the way, you know, give me 10 minutes in a comic book store. You know, again, it's, it's kind of a shame that there, it was so difficult to come by because there was so much good stuff that if you didn't have a comic shop nearby, you were missing Airboy and Dalgota and the Pacific stuff and odd manga reprints and just, you know, 
the oh, well, that's, material. That's the, late, that, the late 80s, like, when you get into that 88, 89, and first does Lone Wolf and Cub, like, everything gets on. It's like, what? You know, Marvel's mm-hmm. doing Akira and coloring it, and it's just, everybody's just like, it. it, it is on yeah. at that point. It's like, oh, there's this cool stuff that's coming over from Asia. What the hell is this? How do I get my hands on it? Well, and that's when Epic started reprinting uh, the Mobius books. Um, yes. As, yes. As comics. I mean, you could get Airtight Garage as a floppy monthly comic, which is insane. Right, right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember getting one of those and reading it like in a in a bunk at summer camp. I, it was funny because every time I encountered Mobius in that era, uh, it was the wrong like introduction and oh, I was yeah. just like this is weird and I don't understand and you're scaring me and it would take longer for it to uh, take hold it was more in sort of my my mal. you know by the time I'm 23 I'm working for Malibu and I'm like okay here's my inventory of things I need to understand so high school junior high this is a you're you're scrounging the Texas countryside for back issues well, I, I, my sophomore year, I punched out because I got a driver's license, and that meant that I could, I could date girls, which meant that all of my disposable income was uh, devoted to, you know, taking them out for an ice cream uh, to have an excuse to talk to them. And so then, it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college, so like '86 to '89, I'm out. And in '89, my roommates had heard me talk about reading comics, and they bought that Jim Lee X-Men that's the orange cover where the Mandarin and Wolverine's like smacking the crap out of the Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And and I was just instantaneously back in because I was like, I need to know what the hell happened. You know, so I was completely driven by the soap opera of, you know, Polaris is doing what and Storm is where and I don't understand what happened to Cyclops and, you know, I had to obsessively go track all that down. What, what were you in college for? Uh, I went to school for radio, television, film. I started off as a fine arts major, as a painting and drawing major, and I became a film major. And, and where was this? University of Texas at Austin. Understand, I I am privileged and thankful for my experience because I went at the right place at the right time through pure dumb luck. You know, my freshman year, South by Southwest started at the University of Texas. Uh, it was sort of that cute thing over in the corner. Uh, when I went through film school, it was with Robert Rodriguez in my classes. You know, like he and I were the only guys that liked Jim Cameron and John Carpenter. And um, it was that pre-Wes Anderson, the Wilson brothers. Matt McConaughey was my age at the university, but he was in the drama department, not the film department. But it was just this golden era of Austin and what it was changing and shifting and turning into. And, you know, Linkletter was making Slacker uh, my sophomore year, and you could see that, all of that happening right in front of you, and sort of the excitement of Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival and how that was changing, you know, Spike Lee and all these hot young Turks were coming in and, like, turning what could be commercial films, you know, upside down. We used to have these little um, comic book festivals at the Dolby Mall where... Robert Rodriguez was doing a daily cartoon in the Daily Texan called Los Hooligans, which is what his production company is named nowadays. It's been changed to Troublemaker Studios, the English translation of Los Hooligans. But the um, he would he would sell little mini comics, which is collections of Los Hooligans, and he'd be sitting next to Shannon Wheeler, who was selling his 
too much Coffee Man mini comics. It's all in my garage somewhere. <laughs> so let's let's uh, roll up to you you entering the comics industry. So were you working in television and film after college, or did you move directly? Yeah, into so comics? I, I graduate with a film degree, throw everything into the back of my car, drive out to L.A., went and got a series of production assistant jobs uh, on TV shows and commercials, and. Then the freelance sort of like production assistant, can I get paid 75 bucks a day, world started to dry up. And I was living on my credit cards and starting to get a little anxious. And so I went to a comic book convention in Riverside. It was actually, yeah, a comic book convention in Riverside. And Malibu Comics had a setup, and they had a video for their Ultraverse character, Hardcase they were launching and it shot on 35 millimeter not 16 millimeter and I walked up to the guy at the booth and I was like how did you guys get your hands on 35 millimeter film equipment and the guy behind the booth was the film director and he was like how do you know the difference between 16 and 35 and so a conversation ensued and he basically said we're starting a straight to video division at Malibu now the first result of this was the, the firearm video uh, which was written by James Robinson and it was based on the character that James created for the Ultraverse. Uh, and that VHS was solicited through the direct market and I don't think sold enough copies to make the the program successful. And so subsequent stuff was canceled and the film division at Malibu was shuttered. But they offered me a job and by the time I transitioned over there and got going, um, there was no more film division and they had an opening in marketing and I desperately needed to pay my bills and so I became a marketing guy which I never thought in a million years would happen and I had a blast and it was great fun and Barry Windsor Smith was doing Rune and Howard Chicken was doing Power and Glory and Walter Simonson was doing Star Slammers and Kevin McGuire was doing Strike Back and I could just keep going on and on Norm Breyfogle was drawing Prime I mean it was just a list of you know, Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber, and, you know, Gerber's no longer with us, and I was just thrilled to have met Steve and, you know, talked to him. I did a few signings with him. I'm sure that he, he had very little recollection of who I was, but it was just such a blast uh, to go through uh, that. It was a real golden age. You know, the, the big uh, sort of thing that had happened at that time was Image had started, and Malibu distributed the first year of Image Comics. A lot of people forget that, but if you look in a copy of Youngblood, Wildcats, Respawn, number one, the inside front cover has the Malibu logo. And after that successful first year, Image left Malibu, and I think Malibu was like, wow, this was a really exciting thing to have happen, but how do we start a line of comic books that doesn't get up and leave? And so they started the Ultraverse, and um, that was exciting to have a mix of uh, classic talent like Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber, who had been so successful uh, back in the 70s, a guy like Mike Barr, who's a huge writer in the 80s, and then new guys like James Robinson, Jim, Jim Hudnall. But the, um, the, the next thing that happened was the Legend imprint launched at Dark Horse as kind of an answer to image, and that had Frank Miller and John Byrne and Jeff Darrow and Mike Mignola, and then the other offshoot group was uh, Bervira, which was Howard Shaken and Walter Simonson. Um, and I know I'm forgetting somebody. I can't remember. Uh, Starlin. Yes, yes, Starlin. Yes, yes, 
Strowman was in there with Kevin McGuire and a couple other guys. And so um, it was really cool because you kind of had these, you know, the Bravura and Legends were sort of the guys that were big in the 80s, in the early 90s doing things, whereas Image was like the guys that were big in the 90s. And so it was just a really exciting time period of publishing, and, you know, Malibu was doing Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is the new Star Trek show, and uh, Mortal Kombat, which was just uh, insanely hot, did the Street Fighter comic, and it's just a great era. Well, I'm sure and, most people listening are, are going to know, but this is really, I mean, it's its riding the crest of a, of a huge wave of popularity. Um, this would have been around 93, you said? Yeah, that's right. So this is about the peak for publishing that's, I mean, comic publishing in general. Um, yep. The, the highest sales across the board since the 40s, I imagine. I, so, so this is the, the, the context for the circulation. I looked at some of the circulation figures on X-Men and stuff, and the X-Men in this era are selling 800,000 copies. And the first 12 issues of Spawn sold a million copies at least per issue in the uh, first year but the to give you a context for the ultraverse by the time they like prime launched i want to say around 250,000 copies and by the time marvel bought the company it was selling 19,000 copies so that's you know it was a tenth of where the book had launched and that was how quick in the mid 90s the industry was crashing so between malibu and boom, what have we got? That's a that's a pretty good stretch of time, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And during that time period, it's sort of like we'll cover my my exodus. This is so much fun because I can actually tell these stories now. <laughs> <laughs> I sat on a bunch of them, um, and I've never said anything. But the um, during this time period, there's a couple people I want to mention that were like really seminal. Uh, Tom Mason was my boss post-acquisition uh, direct report, and he really uh, was very influential and taught me the business and mentored me in a lot of things I used to start Boom. And at the basically, the, when the Marvel acquisition happened, there had been a conversation with DC that had gotten down the road pretty far, and somewhere in my garage is correspondence, and I gotta fish it out and find it and show it to Paul, of it was crossovers that Malibu and DC Comics were gonna do with each other after DC bought Malibu. And it was gonna be like Mantra Wonder Woman, Ultra Force Justice League, you know, Prime Superman, it was all the obvious stuff. Sure. Uh, there was a, gonna be a Firearm Starman crossover, which that would have been awesome. Um, but it was, it was a very, um, interesting shift and I kind of looked at you know I was a big of a, enough of a nerd to know that DC had acquired the Fawcett characters in Charlton and they bought the big five war books back in the 1950s and you know all all American and DC had been two different companies that had merged back in the day and you know Superman the publisher of Superman and Batman was not the publisher of Wonder Woman Flash and Green Lantern and so that was something that DC did well, which was integrate, and they were in the middle of Milestone and Vertigo, and they kind of understood how to keep things separate and keep the flavor. Whereas, like, Marvel was really, you know, most of the time period historically had been under Stan's editorship and was really shaped by his voice on a marketing basis as well as a writing basis. And so I was kind of like my 
intuition was, this is not going to go well. Right. Unfortunately, it was right. Uh, so I was kind of like, look, how do I get out of here without hurting anybody's feelings? Because it's not personal. And I had a lot of fun during the Marvel acquisition, sort of like meeting, you know, uh, Bobby Chase and Carl Potts and uh, Bob Harris and all the people that were over there. And it was kind of a historic era. And I kind of knew that this was a very unique uh, vantage point that I was in and experience that I was going through. But uh, I just, I knew it wasn't for me. And I was a film school kid and I was going to get like, I was living in LA and I was like, look, you know, this is an opportunity to pivot. And so um, my my original boss was John Riley. I reported to John, and then John reported to Tom. And in the acquisition, John had uh, left the company and moved to Prague and to start the Prague Film Festival. And so <clears throat> John had gotten some phone calls from some film producers. And this is right after The Mask and The Crow. And Hollywood's like, oh, wow, these comic books could be movies. So then... Uh, he basically turned to me and handed me uh, a bunch of phone phone numbers and was like, look, here's a bunch of producers. They're looking for comic books to turn into movies. You have a film degree. You know all these writers and artists and stuff. Like, get them to stop calling me. Uh-huh. And and I kind of at that moment was like, wow, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to jump from um, having a credible... Uh, background in comic books to being an entree point for film producers who don't understand the comic book world. And so I took that, those phone numbers and ran and I quit Malibu and, you know, spent time uh, trying to crack that nut and figure that out. And so I did that in between the time of Malibu and Boom and ended up working with Matt Wagner to Option Mage and sold that to Spyglass Entertainment, who are the guys that ultimately bought MGM just recently. You know, I just kind of shut up and kept my head down and uh, knew that I needed to do my 10,000 hours of learning, you know, apprenticing uh, film development. And so I kind of got frustrated with all of that because there were no movies getting made. And I felt like I was treading a lot of water. I was learning a ton, but um, it was just a real, things were not progressing the way that I wanted them to progress. And so um, I got a phone call. I'd struck up a relationship with Keith Giffen. Keith Giffen had called me up, and he had been optioned an offer on Trencher, uh, the old image comics from 20 years ago. And I think that it was an offer from Mel Gibson's company, Icon. And he had heard through the grapevine, which I think in this case was Laverne Kinsierski, the writer, colorist, uh, Laverne, that I had a background in film and was a comic book guy. And so he called me up and was like, hey, they're offering me X, Y, and Z, and what do you think? And I had let everybody know that like, if you ever wanted a third-party opinion about if you're getting screwed or not, I'm happy to provide it. And so I was like, no, you know, this is not the greatest deal in the world, but it, they're not screwing you either and you should pursue this. And so Keith and I set up kind of a friendship uh, where we would call each other. And then he called me one day and he said, hey, I'm doing a comic book image and you're going to write it. And I said, Keith, uh, I don't write. And Keith was like, no, 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 you'll understand. I'm right. I'm, I'm drawing this comic book image and you're going to write it. And I was like, Keith, you know, I don't write. I promise you I'm terrible. And Keith was like, no, you're going to write this comic book. And I was like, look, here's, here's how this is going to go. Like, I'm going to suck, and then we're friends, but you need to understand that you're a legendary creator, and I'm some dude. 
So go in and rewrite me when I suck. It's not if I suck, it's when I suck. I need you to go in and rewrite me. And sure enough, he did and made it better. And the book was called Dominion, and it was launched at the same time as Invincible. So that, you know, I, you know Keith, Keith was awesome, and, you know, fortunately the book sales didn't hold up. But the guy who inked the second issue of that is Dave Elliott. And Dave, along, uh, Dave had started Atomica, along with Gary Leach, who is the artist who drew the first couple of Miracle Mans that just recently got uh, reprinted. And Gary was this guy that I had been a huge fan of his artwork, and I had the original Warrior magazines that uh, had Miracle Man, and I had always been wanting to meet him. And uh, Dave had this, these old, and for the listeners that don't know, Atomica was a publisher in 88 and 89, they did an anthology, and it was called A1, and literally what Dave told me was he was in England at the pub, and he would just go from booth to booth to booth, and like Barry Windsor Smith and John Bolton and Grant Morrison and Warren Ellis, and these are like you know young Grant Morrison at the era of like Arkham Asylum and... Uh, uh, Warren had, you know, was just beginning to be published, and he would just be like, "Hey, do you want to do a short story, six pages, eight pages?" And they were like, "What does it pay?" And he was like, "Everyone gets, you know, this is the flat rate, and you divvy it up with your creative team, however you want to divvy it up. Everyone gets paid the same, and you can do anything you want." And so this anthology had this wide variety of different kinds of stuff, and it had always been an incredible anthology that I loved, and. Um, Dave was like, hey, I want to bring this back and I want to put it in trades because this is like 2004 and trades are hot. Uh, the whole emerging sort of everybody put something in trades is happening. And uh, <coughs> I um, I was like, dude, this is awesome. So I knew Joe Nosmack who started Oni back mm-hmm. in the day. I knew Joe and Bob. And I knew, uh, you know, Bob had moved on to DC. And I knew um, William Christensen who started Avatar. And I knew uh, the image guys. And so I basically said, hey, let me help you email this around to some of the relationships I have. And about nine months went by and nobody bit. And I was just driving around one day and I was like, oh, maybe I could do it. So I called up Dave and I was like, look, you know, no one's really biting on this, but I'll I'll do it. I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll bankroll it. I'll be the publisher. And so Dave took a chance on me and... The first book was pretty successful and did well. And um, out of that, kind of the relationship that I had with Dave was that uh, the Atomica guys could kind of do what they wanted to do, and I wanted to launch and take a chance on a couple of original ideas uh, under the umbrella of Atomica, and one of them was Hero Squared. And I would talk to Keith Giffen, and I'd be like, dude, why aren't you doing the funny Justice League stuff? And he was like, I don't know. You know, like, dude, nobody's asking me to. And I was like, well, I am. He was like, well, you're going to need to talk to Jam DeMattis because he's the guy that I do that with. And so I called up Mark DeMattis and struck up a relationship with him and talked him into uh, doing Hero Squared. And that, we did Hero Squared exercise special under the Atomica banner. And then... Um, Dave and I had a conversation, and uh, he wanted to go a different way. And Keith Giffen was saying to me, you should start your own company. And I thought he was crazy. And he came into L.A., and this is the end of 2004. So this is like December 2004. He comes in for a con, 
and doing a signing, and he's just like, you need to start your own company, you need to start your own company, and I was like, this is just nuts. And we just went drinking in a little um, hole in the wall, uh, and he would only drink really bad light beer. I remember it so vividly. And the next day I woke up and I was like, I can't believe that Keith Giffen thinks that I could publish comics. So uh, that's how we started. We did started with a three-issue miniseries for Hero Squared because I financially could not do a fourth issue. And we were off to the races. Uh, and where, where does Zombie Tales, that's in, that's in that first year? Yeah, Zombie Tales is, was actually solicited under Atomica. Oh, wow. And, yeah, if you go back and you look at the first issue, it has the Atomica logo on it. But it also has the Boom logo on it because Boom had started, and um, the you know Dave didn't initiate Zombie Tales. So Dave was like, "Look, you know, why don't you go ahead and put the Boom logo on it? It's fine with me because it's really a Boom project." And the Atomica logo is on it because it was solicited under the Atomica banner. But that way, retailers wouldn't get confused if they had to do reorders. So. At around the same time, it, you you have some peers that came up at the same time. Um, I'm thinking you might help me through the timeline here. Uh, is IDW beginning around the same time? It was still uh, no. They were ahead of me, and were very inspirational and exciting. You know, friends with Ted, and I just think that those guys are so smart and amazing. But yes. I want to say, you know, Thirty Days of Night is more like 2003 and like that just changed everything I mean my contemporaries like literally my contemporaries at that exact time oh look 30 days a night is 2002 okay so I know it always felt like a giant gulf for me of like by the time I was doing like one comic book a month they were gigantic you know they had gone through this huge uh, you know, 30 Days of Night was massive. Um, but uh, my contemporaries were Alias mm-hmm. and Speakeasy. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were launching in June, and Alias and Speakeasy launched in like March and April. And I was like, oh my God, we're doomed. I, I would say what's fascinating for now, so much later that we can look back on, is the early aughts. So. When IDW shows up, it's heralding the end of Dreamwave, uh, which had been a titan. Mm -hmm. You know, like, IDW got their hands on Transformers after Dreamwave kind of went out of business, and it was was a huge passing of the baton. And Devil's Due had really started that whole era and, you know, was publishing a tremendous amount of stuff and was a big publisher, but it's, it's sort of like... It's a it's a changing of the guard. Uh, how you know? I think when IDW came in and you know it, it changed everything. Yeah. It's like IDW and Dynamite showing up is the shifting from Dreamwave and Devils Do. My idea was with Boom that I was going to create this little boutique, and it would be a world where I could work with guys like Keith Giffen and J.M. Dematis and you know, Dave Johnson or Mark Wade and like we could just go do stuff that we wanted to do and everybody could kiss off. And it was like I was so tired of having to go into a gigantic corporation and get five sign offs to 
to just try to do anything creative. That the whole idea of I could write the check and the writer and the artist could do what they want and I would be the editor slash publisher. It would be like a three-man band and we could just you know, get on the phone and decide what we we're going to do that afternoon. That was like heaven to me. And yeah. I could just go do my own thing. And, I, you know, the irony was the first day, I will never forget the first day that Hero Squared Exercise Special came out, my phone rang off the hook. And I'm such a moron because I had spent like nearly a decade in the film business, eight years. And of course, I was going to have a bunch of producers call me up and be like, hey, Hero Squared, a movie. Which it's not a movie, you know. We could we could, we could be on the record. I'm sorry, <laughs> Keith and Mark, if you think it's a movie. I don't think it's a movie. Um, that was just the beginning. <laughs> I was I was entirely unprepared. It's but by, by about two years later, I was just like, okay. It, it was it was funny because I have you and I have known each other a long time, so you know that this is a part of my personality of like, I I was by 2007. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm telling such an uh, incomplete, fragmentary way to say this. Like, one of the first things Paul Levitz wanted to know when we were talking about him uh, doing some consulting work for Booms, he was like, hey, what's the deal with all this Hollywood stuff? And he obviously had the experience of going from, like, he, you know, being a Tim Burton Batman movie deal all the way to Chris Nolan. And so, you know, a few people had more experience. And I was like, Paul, here is my perspective on Hollywood. I'm Rorschach from Watchmen. Now, let me just say, I try not to make geeky comic book references when I talk to Paul Levitz because I don't want to sound like a complete slack-jawed oh, fanboy. I know the exact but, reference you're going to make. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know that part in Watchmen where they've captured Rorschach, and he's like, you think that I'm stuck in this room with you, but what you don't get is you're stuck in this room with me? Like... In 2007, there were so many people that wanted to option the comic books that we published that I was like, okay, fine. You want to come in here and you want to option these comic books. The problem that you have is I'm not from Lincoln, Nebraska. Like, I spent 10 years in your business, and I know when you're full of crap, and I know when you're lying to me. And so I'm just not going to put up with it. So I will, you know, you're going to have to contend with somebody that lives in town and we'll do the phone calls and go to the meetings. And when you come up with the idea of putting a robot dog in it, I'm going to look you dead in the eye and be like, that's a terrible idea. We're not doing that. You also, if, if I may be so bold, have the advantage of not needing the validation. And I feel yes. like uh, yes. a lot of companies have come and gone that were desperate for the validation of the film industry. And you were yeah. primarily wanting to make good comics, which is... A... I was trying to get away from them. Alex, yes, yes. <laughs> I, 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 it, it turned out that I had a Keystone Cops level plan that completely blew up in my face. Like I'm going to mix my metaphors with Wiley Coyote cigar that I lit. Uh, but it was no. I mean, you can't. You, I, I just don't have the patience. Relative, I had gone through the arc of spending eight years dealing with them, and I was just done. You know, I just didn't care. And, of course, the irony was they loved that. You know, it was like, oh, wow, this guy pushes back. This is exciting. He's not amazed by our typical parlor games, you know. And so then it was like, oh, you know, let's sell things in bidding wars and everybody wants stuff. And, you know, it, it became a feeding frenzy. I'm sitting here, you know, talking smack about Hollywood on a phone 
on the Fox lot. So yeah, I didn't want to point out that the uh, your <laughs> escape pod didn't really work out. But uh, escape pod did not. Escape pod went right back to the main ship. You get dragged back by gravitational pull. <laughs> um, I'm happy and thankful with how everything worked out, but it is very very ironic. Yes. We are going to um, skip over the, the boom midsection there. We're going to skip over the exciting part where you grow into a vital and exciting company and, and hit straight to today. I think that that's a whole other podcast when we talk about the growth of, of, of boom. Maybe give us like the general arc from, uh, from those early Giffen Demetrius days. Um, so the big, you know, there was... Hero Square did really well for us. Zombie Tales did really well for us. Uh, we did a book called Fall of Cthulhu, which was our first ongoing that did really well for us. And then Farscape was huge. Warhammer was huge. And then Wade, uh, Mark Wade came on as editor-in-chief and did some great work. And then a little bit later, he launched Irredeemable with us. And that was big. That was really massive. Mm-hmm. And then we went through a really robust year where we did things like Die Hard and do Android Stream of Electric Sheep from Philip K. Dick and the Disney comics. And everybody remembers the Disney comics, and it made quite an impression because I think it really architected a space at retail and comic book stores for all ages comics. And then the Disney comics went away. And Mark uh, was coming up on his 50th birthday and decided he wanted to move on and uh, do other stuff, and it was a big sea change for us, and we brought in Adventure Time, and that launched a whole new era, and the excitement around Kaboom, and uh, it's been, you know, we had a big year last year with Clyde Barker and Mike Carey and Max Venus and a bunch of exciting talent, and now we're in this whole new present day with Boombox. With our new imprint. Was Boomtown the first imprint? Yeah, uh, well, it was. No, we the first imprint was Boom Kids. Okay, which became and, Kaboom. Yeah, I was I, I was selling Muppets number one at the Toronto Fan Expo, and this guy that looked like he was about twenty five years old walked up to the booth, and when he saw Boom Kids as the logo on the Muppets comics, he walked away. And, okay. I was and like, that was oh, the Roger Langridge Muppets. That's right. Which yep. is, and I was has, like, we need to change the name of this imprint. And so we changed it to Kaboom to get rid of the kid part. Because it's really for everybody. It is for everybody. And Roger Langridge is probably like the platonic ideal of an actual all ages, meaning all yep. ages. Like anybody can read that book and it's terrific. Yeah, and that, that informs the development. You know, Cars that we did for under the Disney Comics license, it's really not, there's very few adults that read Cars. There are fans that are older of Cars, mm-hmm. but it's it's kind of the most kidsy of all that publishing and was one of the least successful things we did. And it really taught me that, you know, being Puppy Cat or uh, Adventure Time or Bravest Warriors, these are things that adults read. And you need to get the marketing straight where an adult feels comfortable buying the book. So the segue to Boomtown, Dennis Kitchen approached me and said, hey, I have a bunch of stuff that I want to republish. You know, it's like, hey, I have these R. Crumb trading cards, which I'm like, you know, Robert Crumb. Uh, when I was at Atomica, I published an Alan Moore story, and I was like, Robert Crumb, Alan Moore, you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I just knew that if we did that under studios, people would kind of wrinkle their nose at it and look at it like it's weird. And I stole a page from Malibu when 
um, the when Image was launched, the imprint idea at Malibu was the guys who created Image own Image, and they can take it take it and leave whenever they wanted to, and they did after the first year. Mm-hmm. But when Revere launched, which was very much that sort of like all star rare artists group like Image, just a generationally older. Uh, the deal was Bravura as a imprint was owned by Malibu, but the creators owned the series. And so I said to Dennis, I was like, look, you know, I'll start an imprint for the, for you, and it's basically called Boomtown, but, you know, you can take your projects and leave, but I want to keep Boomtown and do other things under its aegis. And so... Uh, he agreed to that, and we did. We published some stuff through it, um, but I think that people really didn't want to see that from Boom. And when we we had always kind of kept Boomtown in our pocket and thought, you know, we wanted to reconfigure it, put some energy behind it. And uh, when things like Midas Flash and Lumberjanes uh, and the um, all the stuff that we have coming up through Boombox was coming through the door and landing on our desk. We were like, this is the Aegis that we want to re-energize uh, Boomtown with. The problem is, as, as we sat down, I was like, you know, what's a more compelling hook for a message to the business? Is it, hey, this imprint that Boom did that people didn't really gravitate towards, we're re-energizing it? Or is it, hey, there's this cool new thing we're doing at Boom, and it's called Boombox. And so I was like, you know what? Doing a new thing called Boombox is much cooler than revitalizing something that the market didn't ever embrace. And so I just kind of quietly took Boomtown to the back of the barn and put two to the back of its head and in its place. (laughs) They're all my children. It makes me sad. That's a horrible uh, metaphor, but you know what I'm saying. Sure. Um, and And I was just like, look, you know, Boombox, let's launch a new imprint. Bang. So, um, so we had Boombox, Boom, and then Kaboom and Studios, and then we bought Arcade last year. Mm-hmm. And so now we have four imprints. And really, kind of what you can see in my uh, sort of publishing voice is Malibu's influence, because there was Malibu, which published Star Trek Deep Space Nine and uh, Street Fighter. Then there was the Ultraverse which were not branded Malibu Comics. Everyone knew Malibu was putting it out, but if you look back at those books, they don't have the Malibu logo on them. And then there was Bravira, and they had like three major publishing imprints, and we have four. Well, and I think it also speaks to your taste, um, which, is, which is wide and varied, Definitely. where you, know, you have Boombox, which is starting to look like kind of a, like the early days of alternative publishing, circa 1994, with the, you know books like... I was going to say Dirty Plot, but that's, you know, mm-hmm. the, the spirit of Dirty yeah. Plot, if not the, <laughs> uh, sure. the explicit nature. No, no, nature no, you know, there's going to be stuff that, you know, Boombox is not, Lumberjanes is something that you can read your daughter. Uh, we got a couple things coming out from Boombox that are going to be things that you need to keep away from your daughter. And sure. please keep them away from my daughter. So My daughter's dad would probably read them, but... <laughs> But you know, books like uh, like the early days of hate, the early days of, of yep. eight ball, it, it 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 has that flavor so far, and with you know the kind of what what it, where it seems like it's going, um, it is very creator oriented and very the the early days of of alt publishing. Um, um, totally. And I'm sure a lot of the creators that you're working with were influenced by that era. 
Um, and then Archaea has has the flavor of kind of your your Pacifics and your 2000 ADs and your heavy metal. So you, you can start to see all of these little things, you know, in drips and drabs across your publishing line, your, your interests, my, you know. My schizophrenia is manifest. Sure. Yes, my, my multiple personalities. But, you know, that's not a bad thing when it comes to comic publishing. Um, <laughs> Thank God. So the, the other thing that you've done that's interesting, you've started bringing a, a stable of, of artists and, and writers along. You've, you've got a real bullpen of exclusive creators, which is not something that you started out with. And one of those being George Perez. Um, how, how big a thrill is that to bring him on board? It's, it's not only mind-blowing, and the relationship really came through Philip Sablik, who has known George for so long, and, you know, it's been such a joy. He, it was, it was sort of an, an exciting idea of like, hey, you know, George is a guy that we can do an exclusive deal with, we can, you know, address health insurance and some things and, you know, get him better health insurance, and, um, and he could come over here and kind of do his own thing, and... Um, have freedom, and those were all the things he was looking for. He was really kind of looking to do more idiosyncratic work and personal, and uh, had done great work at Marvel and DC, and was just hungry for that. And, it, and it's just, you know, I find myself, it's like with Paul Levitz, I find myself in situations where I'm having conversations with people that are far too professionally accomplished to be sitting in the room with me. You know, I, it's like I'm sitting here talking to, you know, Paul McCartney or, um, you know, uh, Robert Plant, and like, what the hell? Why? Why is this happening? <laughs> you know, so I, it's it's humbling, and I just I'm I I really don't know what to say. <laughs> it's it's amazing, and and my sensibility is like, if if you have these once in a lifetime opportunities to do these things, like have a shot with George Perez, my nightmare is you get to the end of that relationship, and George is like, I am really unhappy, and you suck. I mean, nothing would make seven-year-old Ross cry inside of me, like, you know, screwing that up. And so I'm propelled by that, you know, this is awesome. How do we do this right? How do we really deliver? How do we make this experience something that he's, you know, very happy and satisfied with? Those are my obsessions. I, I knew that I didn't have a name when I started Boom, that anybody knew who I was. It was always at every show when I walked into the small press area, into the Ars Alley area, it was, uh, hi, my name is Ross, this is who we are, this is what we've done. And I didn't have any advantages, and I certainly didn't have a bankroll. And so my uh, sort of thought process was, I remember when Joe Abraham, who drew Hero Squared, was uh, being recruited by Devil's Due to draw some Devil's Due books. And Devil's Due was a bigger publisher and they had a bigger bankroll. And, you know, Josh Blaylock and I are friends. And I knew that Joe Abraham needed to go do better, more better paying work uh, and make a better page trade. And it wasn't, I couldn't pay Joe more because the book sold what the book sold. And, um, you know, it was fine for him to go migrate and move on in his career. We gave gave him an opportunity. He seized it and did well with it and upgraded, and he was going to go move on and go have his own career, and I thought that was cool. Um, but it was like there are other opportunities, and I remember finding Raphael Albuquerque and publishing him in 
uh, Savage Brothers and Jeremiah Harm. And, you know, you're, the, the talent is amazing. Every day there is an incredible new comic book artist. And what's exciting is to be, to, to give these people a shot where it's like, hey, here's the microphone, sing a song. Right. You know, like, get up on stage, do your thing. And if you go sign a multi-million dollar, you know, recording contract and become the next uh, Coldplay, then God bless, you know, I'm going to high five you. Well, and you also, you know, you want them to create what they're creating and you also want to sell comics. And that's the other split where a lot of comics get published that then, you know, don't have the mechanism to get them onto shelves or or get them attention. Um, Yep. So you you know you fulfill the loop, which a, a lot of people seem to forget that there's an extra step between drawing and printing. Well, and you know there's nothing that's more brutal than being in a place where you know you're doing this without any commercial pressure to try to build up a couple bucks so that you can build a better mousetrap and and and, and build and publish more comics, and then some project that you put your whole heart and soul into you solicit it and you lose $25,000 and the next thing loses you $30,000 it's just devastating mm-hmm. you know it, it just it, it's like there's no experience that I have in life like you know you have to set that money on fire and all the commercial all the all the creative desire and aspiration and love that you have for that project is completely meaningless because it just wiped you out and and you know it claims so many publishers along the way and so it is a you know those early years are all about a tooth and nail fight to stay alive how much can you talk about your plans going into the future i know that you probably don't want to unleash it all on everybody but but what's what's your vision going forward not too much but i do want to do a very kind of quick recap of some stuff you know we kicked off the year with uh curse from michael Maurice and tim daniel uh and colin lorimer and riley rosmo uh for a shoe series we did it's a werewolf book that got a huge response that we're super proud of and think is amazing and uh jason star andrea muddy did uh the returning for us and i think that really kicked off a uh big year this is going to be our biggest year and the studio's imprint has really, you know, Kaboom has gotten a lot of attention. Boombox has gotten a lot of attention. Arkea is extremely successful. And I think Studios is really coming into its own. And Evil Empire from Max Bemis was a huge book for us. Dead Letters uh, has been huge creative commercial success for us. Uh, the Woods from James Tynan has just, is burning the house down and has been one of our biggest books we've ever published. And uh, we've, you know, there, there's sort of a, a triumvirate right now for us with uh, Lumberge Jane's Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Being Puppy Cat that have come out that have just really uh, been some of the biggest sellers we've ever had at the company and is really driving the direction of where we're going. And Arkea's put out a really cool series called Last Broadcast that did a lot better. Uh, than we expected it to do, and it's really a strong book that we're very proud of. Uh, Claudio Sanchez with his wife, uh, Johnny, uh, just put out Translucid with Daniel Bayless' draw on the book, and that one has been a huge book, huge book for them and for us. And it's really cool to see uh, all these people discover uh, how talented Johnny and Claudio are, and um, 
it's just it's been a big year. We just had Empty Man just sold out, 9,500 copies. It's announced on Bleak Cool today. Uh, Colin Bunn and Vanessa Ardell Ray did that, and it's just been it's been a really strong year. And I think you know what you should see from us is doubling down. We took Archaea back into doing singles. We did it with Hacktivist, which was a big hit for us this year, and followed it up with Last Broadcast, which is doing well. And so I think uh, back half of this year, going into next year, you're going to see more singles from Archaea. There's going to be some more OGNs. We're doing a Sergio Toppy book, which we're super excited about. Um, that stuff I think you are a fan of. Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's going to be, you know, with Archaea, there, we put out some Jim Henson um, novels that were published in the 80s that were tie-ins to, to movies, you know, to Labyrinth and to Dark Crystal and we're doing a storyteller one, um, and those books have been have we've had to go back to press. We printed enough we bought for three years, and we've sold out in a matter of weeks. So that's been a huge experience for us. And so you know, I would promise more of the same. You know, Boombox got off to a strong, strong start with um, Lumberjanes, and we're trying to kind of uh, wrap our heads around what's happening and get out in front of it and uh, understand. Uh, what the response has been and kind of understand uh, you, you want to be very careful with things like that. You don't want to overproduce and kill the enthusiasm. You don't want to underproduce and drive the fans away. And so we're figuring that out. And so it's cool to see that imprint really make a, make a mark. I think Archaea is really um, flourishing and Studios is really coming into its own. And you know, Kaboom's got, we just did this first look deal with, with Cartoon Network, and we have Steven Universe and a bunch of other books coming out that are going to be really profile. So I think we're in a good place. You know, it's 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 a lot of fun. I, you know, really, really get to wake up in the morning and go to the Funny Book Factory, and it's like a dream come true. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. and uh, Thank you for having me as a guest. It's I'm thrilled to be asked. Thank you, Ross. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Let me thank Ross Ritchie for his time. Uh, we appreciate him spending some time on the phone with us. I'm sure you heard a lot of background noise. I apologize. We occasionally have to record these in our office in Midtown Manhattan, which is uh, a noisy place to be. This podcast was edited, produced, and hosted by me, Alex Cox. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to continue the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and clicking the Donate banner. This podcast and all of our education programs are made possible by donation from the Gaiman Foundation and from the financial support of listeners like you. Thank you very much.